up? Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm in studio with co-host Joseph Cacharo. How long did it take you to come up with sup? <laughs> I was thinking about it all last night, tossing and turning in bed. Nice. Um, we're here. It's uh, Wednesday morning, and I think there there's a lot that we could hit on. There are two teams I feel like that have kind of run away from the pack yeah. uh, throughout the first third of the season so far, and to be honest, like we've talked about them a bit, but I don't know that we've really given them the, the full weight of our attention in the way that they probably deserve. Those two teams are playing each other in a blockbuster game on Thursday night, and that's the Milwaukee Bucks and the Los Angeles Lakers. They're both 24-4, and four, tied for the best record in the NBA. And, you know, I, I picked the Bucks to make the finals. You picked the Lakers to make the finals. But neither of us agreed with each other on those picks. So... Why don't we talk about those teams and see if we can maybe meet in the middle a little bit and talk about how or if our expectations of them have changed based on what they've done so far. Well, first of all, you talk about running away from the pack. Third through 11th in the overall standings right now, separated by two games, a a third of the way through the season. Only one game in the loss column separates third overall and 11th overall. And yet, the two teams that are one and two are three and a half games clear of that pack. So yeah. Definition of separating themselves um, in each conference. In terms of, I guess, how the season's gone for both compared to my expectations, look, I, as you mentioned, I picked the Lakers to make the finals. I picked the Lakers to win the whole damn thing. I picked LeBron to win MVP. And I still didn't think they would be this good this quickly. And I particularly didn't think they would be this good defensively. I think Anthony Davis has looked like a defensive player of the year candidate. I think he's got to be the front runner yeah. at this point in time. Um, given how well the team has defended despite some defensive limitations on the roster and maybe that's like people weren't giving enough credit to the defensive capabilities on the roster like Danny Green's there Avery Bradley's there you know I mentioned at the beginning of the season now just having those guys on the court at the same time with LeBron essentially ensures LeBron doesn't have to guard the best or even the second best perimeter threat on the other team so I'm not surprised that they're good I'm surprised that they're this good this quickly and particularly on the defensive end and I guess the only other thing I'd add and I think I've mentioned this on other episodes is that I'm surprised we haven't seen as much of the LeBron AD pick and roll that everyone expected was going to run roughshod over the league. We haven't really seen much of it at all through the first 27, 28 games of the season, and yet it hasn't mattered. And I mean, that, that is a byproduct, I think, of the fact that they have not played AD at center all that much. And when he is on the floor with another big man, that big man is either JaVale McGee or Dwight Howard. Those are not floor spacing bigs. Those guys are if they're not involved in the pick and roll or not directly involved in whatever action the Lakers are running, they're hanging out in the dunker spot. And that makes it pretty difficult to run those pick and rolls with AD. They found workarounds for that. Obviously with LeBron, he's such a good post entry passer. The Lakers have found creative ways, you know, with cross screens to get Davis into good spots in the post. And LeBron obviously is able to feed him the ball wherever He's still hooked up with him for a whole bunch of lobs. I think, you know, three and a half assists of LeBron's per game are going to Davis. They're running a lot of corner offense where Davis, you know, is going to set a pin down in the corner for one of the Lakers shooters or vice versa a lot of times to get Davis basically going into the middle off of curls. Any any which way you slice it, I mean, the, the team has been outstanding so far. And I think 
you know, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. Like, I didn't expect them to be remotely this good. I know they played a kind of soft schedule, and that's something we can talk about. But, like, we've seen with LeBron before when he goes into a kind of new situation. I know this is his second year with the Lakers, but the, the roster is totally remade. And it takes a while for it to click. He has, you know, what he has termed feel-out games where he's just trying to get a, a feel and a sense for the roster around him and how it's all going to work. I don't know that we've ever seen anything click this quickly when he is playing with a new high-profile teammate. It took a little while in Miami. That first season in Cleveland got off to a really bumpy start, and they've just hit the ground running in L.A. And a lot of people have pointed out that LeBron kind of came into this season on a mission, as you predicted that he would. He is leading the league in assists, which we both, I think, predicted that he would. And there are certain elements of that that haven't been surprising, but... A lot of it has, and I think the defense has been, um, you know, the most surprising thing, both in, in terms of how LeBron has played at that end of the floor, but just how the whole apparatus has really worked and how one hand has kind of washed the other in terms of the guards being able to funnel ball handlers toward the middle to where that huge front line is typically waiting. Yeah, and it's how engaged LeBron looks on the defensive end too, right? Like, uh, on an individual level that I think has caught people a little by surprise, and you know, that's one thing, like, a lot of people were talking about LeBron not playing defense anymore in the regular season. Like, the last time we saw him in the playoffs in 2018, even though he had a near-historic playoff performance, and, you know, he had that insane Game 1 at Golden State, and he basically beat the Celtics single-handedly, if you go back to that playoff run, like, he wasn't that good defensively in that playoff run either, right? And it's so, we got to a point where it's like, okay, maybe this wasn't just oh, he's not trying on defense in the regular season. Maybe it's just, you know, father time slowly creeping up to him. He just can't do the things he used to do defensively. But then you look at this year and it's like, man, maybe it was just a matter of him flipping that switch again on the defensive end because he's looked pretty damn good on that end. And especially at moments of games when they've really needed a stop or him to do something on that end. I think as a team right now, they're fourth defensively. I have Third. Third, yeah. Third, sorry. So them in the box... Uh, obviously, who we're talking about today are the only two teams top five on both ends right now. Um, both those teams also, every single rotation player has a positive on-court net that's rating. That's very interesting. Um, so, you know, their their depth has basically come through for them. And I know, you know, some things might not be sustainable, like Rondo shooting 45% from three. But, you know, they've gotten contributions up and down the roster. And I mentioned AD mostly playing with a, a traditional center alongside of him. I think that was something that we were both skeptical about coming into the season. It's been a little touch and go sometimes when he plays with McGee. When he's been on the floor with Howard, they have murdered teams. Dwight's been awesome for this team. Yeah. He's been perfect in his role. I was looking at, at the cleaning the glass filters, and basically, in terms of the shot distribution of opponents, when Dwight is on the floor, opponents take 6% fewer of their shots at the rim when Dwight is on the floor, which is a 97th percentile mark among big men. When Davis is on the floor, opponents actually take 5% more of their shots at the rim. And if you consider how how much him and Howard are actually overlapping, they've played about eight minutes a a game together. Um, Then that gives you an idea of when he's on the floor without Howard, actually how how dramatic that increase actually is. Right, teams are challenged. Which, which is really interesting, given how well he like he's defended at the rim, because uh, um, guys are shooting forty eight percent at the rim when he is in the vicinity. So maybe that's a scheme thing. Maybe they're making more of an attempt to actually funnel guys toward Davis. 
I was just interested to see that, how, how good Howard has been, not just at protecting the rim, but just at deterring those shots at the rim from even happening in the first place. Yeah, and his numbers in that regard have been pretty good, even the last few years. Uh, his rebounding numbers have been solid, right? It's just always been a question of, will he accept the role that is clearly tailor-made for him at this point of his career? Is he going to demand post-ups or whatever? And he ended up in the perfect situation because he's not going into a, onto a team with LeBron James and Anthony Davis with you know maybe his last chance to win a title and demanding post-ups. So he's just kind of accepted his role, and he has flat-out excelled at it. The other thing I'll mention, you know, you had said the the schedule was, was kind of soft, and it has been. But, like, full credit to this team. They lost opening night, then won seven in a row. Then they lost to Toronto in a disappointing effort in the Raptors' first game with Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka. Then they reel off ten wins in a row. Then they lose to the Mavs and win seven in a row. And now they lose in Indiana without Anthony Davis. So who knows the kind of streak they're going to go on now. But the other thing that ended in Indiana was a 14-game road winning streak, which to me might actually be more impressive than the Bucks' 18-game winning streak that was snapped by the Mavs the other night. Like winning 14 games in a row on the road, I don't care how bad, how soft your schedule is. That's kind of insane. Yeah, and they, you know, they won in Denver and in Utah, a couple tough places to play. They won in Miami. So they have had some impressive wins sprinkled in there. The 10-game winning streak that they had, it was Suns, Warriors, Kings, Hawks, Thunder, Thunder, Grizzlies, Spurs, Pelicans, Wizards. Not exactly a murderer's row. And, you know, look, you win 10 games in a row in the NBA, that's impressive. And we can talk about this when we talk about the streak that Milwaukee just had as well. But I'm curious to see what happens with them over this upcoming stretch. I mean, will they have Davis back for that game against Milwaukee? Obviously, you know, that that would just be such a tantalizing matchup. Giannis and AD, you know, would those two guys guard each other? How frequently would they guard each other? Um, there's just a lot that I would be interested to see. So I really hope that he's healthy for that game. Um, and after that Bucks game, they're going to go back home to play Denver and the Clippers back-to-back. Clippers is the Christmas Day game. Yeah. Uh, and then back on the road to play the Blazers, back home to play Dallas. So they've got a tough slate coming up, and I think this is where we're really going to get the measure of this team. Uh, and, and you just hope that they're fully healthy for those games so we can actually find out. Yeah, and then January, if you look beyond this little five-game stretch that's kind of tough, January gets real easy for them. So they can survive the next basically week and a half, two weeks. They should be able to rip off another streak in January. So my question for you then, given everything we've discussed about the Lakers, is have you seen enough from them or have you seen anything from them to change your mind about their ability to beat the Clippers four out of seven times? I haven't. <clears throat> not yet. Um, is that more? Is that more? You're not convinced by what they've done in the soft schedule, or more so you just remain? No, I mean they're more 20, impressed by what the Clippers have done and the way that roster looks. They're 24 and four. Like it's hard. There's nothing I can say that is like they haven't done enough to show me X, Y, or Z. Like they're better than I thought they would be, and I thought they would make the conference finals, and and that the only team really standing in their way in the West would be the Clippers. I just still think that's the case. I think the the Clippers match up with them really well. And the Lakers can pose some matchup problems for the Clippers too, something we've talked about before, but the fact that the Clippers don't have a ton of interior defense could be an issue. But we saw how they sort of worked around that in that opening night game against the Lakers. The Lakers were just repeatedly posting up AD, and the Clippers were fronting him and bringing that help on the backside. And look, I, I you know the Lakers, with the combination of LeBron's passing and the shooting they have around those guys, can find ways to bust that sort of coverage. 
but I think that the Lakers are ultimately going to have more trouble trying to guard the Clippers and the Clippers are going to have guarding the Lakers. That's just my feeling. And it has nothing to do with what either of those teams have done so far. It's just the feeling that I have about how those teams are built and what they're going to look like when they're at full throttle in the playoffs. But I do feel like they've closed the gap and, and they have... You know, after that opening night game, I was like, okay, like, I, I just don't think that, you know, the Clippers have played that game without Paul George, and already it looked like they just had so much more depth than the Lakers did, and I didn't see how which the Lakers... Which they do. Which they do, but I think my mind has started to change about how close the Lakers actually are uh, to being able to close that gap, and I certainly wouldn't be shocked by any means if they managed to beat the Clippers in a playoff series. So... They've been really impressive to me, and again, I'm I'm just super excited to to see what happens with this game on Thursday night. Uh, they're playing the Bucks. The Bucks have been utterly ridiculous. Also, twenty four and four, but they have a far better net rating. They're twelve point four net rating, which would be the best of all time. They're first in defense, second in offense. They just had an eighteen game winning streak snapped against. Uh, the Doncic-less Dallas Mavericks, which full credit to the Mavs, and full credit to the Pacers, too, uh, who beat the Lakers last night. Both of those teams playing essentially without their best players, managing to topple a couple of Giants. Uh, really impressive from both of those squads. But for the Bucks, I mean, wh- why do you think that we haven't talked about this team more? Is it just the fact that like they had this dominant regular season last year, couldn't get all the way through in the playoffs and now this is just a kind of believe it when we see it type of season for them that's exactly what I think it is I mean we saw Giannis Antetokounmpo win MVP last year um, and you know despite James Harden having the historic season he had Giannis win it like pretty clearly Uh, we saw them win 60 games last year we saw them have the number one defense last year and I think the number four offense and blow teams away last year. Not to this level, granted. I think last year, I'm looking at it now, their, their net rating was plus 8.6, which is still pretty insane. This year, it's like, as you mentioned, I think plus 12 12.4, yeah. Right, which would be the greatest of all time. So I get that they are doing everything a little better than what they did last year when it was already crazy. But there are a, little, a lot of similarities in the way they're just kind of waxing teams right now in the style of play, which again, you know, why would you change the style of play when it got you where it got you last year? In Giannis's play, although I think he has reached even another level, and I think we mentioned Anthony Davis as a defensive player of the year candidate. Giannis Antetokounmpo with the Bucks having the number one defensive rating, I think needs to get some of those votes. They're good, and I've got no doubts about that. They're insanely good, and they very well could get to the finals, but I've seen nothing from them and I don't think that's a fault of theirs. It's just one of these things where after what happened last year, I need to wait till April, May, and June to really believe in this team in April, May, and June. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's like, nothing they can do in the regular season to change your mind about about not picking them. No, I mean, the look, finals. I guess if, I don't know, if they really thoroughly beat all the other contenders, sure. I mean, I guess that's that's one way to change my mind. But again, they kind of beat contenders last year too. You know, they, they were pretty dominant against the Raptors in the regular season. And for two games of that, well, not dominant, but, you know, pretty good for two games of that series, too. And then it all fell apart and they couldn't adjust quickly enough. You know, Mike Budenholz are still there. He's, he, talk about like a show me something yeah. year. Well, I mean, I think the book on Budenholzer at this point is, in terms of the macro stuff, he's unbelievable. In terms of just creating a structure and a system and a culture, 
that can allow a team to thrive over the course of a long regular season. He is among the best, maybe the best right now in the NBA. But when it comes to the micro stuff, when you get into a playoff series and you have to make adjustments, matchup specific, you know, on a game to game, possession by possession basis, that's where you stumbled in the past. And very similar to what people were saying about Dwayne Casey in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, I think his track record is a little bit better than Dwayne Casey's was, but I also think to a certain extent, this idea that their formula cannot hold up to postseason scrutiny is like a little bit overblown because they ran roughshod over Detroit, which granted is not a huge accomplishment. That team was, you know, playing with a banged up Blake Griffin and not that good to begin with. But then they, they took Boston in the second round, a team that, you know, a lot of people thought at least coming into the season was good enough to make the finals and possibly win the whole thing and dusted them. And like you say, I mean, they, they jump out to a 2 nothing lead in that series against the Raptors. And I just still think, I've said it before, I'll say it again, that series was closer than a lot of people remember. The Bucks were closer to winning that series than people remember. Well, and they were a couple bounces away from Game 3 going their way, and, and it would have been and being lights out. being 3 yeah. Um, a couple bounces or maybe a couple timely adjustments. And I think that, you know, that is a fair criticism. And maybe you're right, and maybe we will have to wait and see. I just think we should appreciate what they're doing right now. Um, Giannis is averaging 31.7 points, 12.8 rebounds, 5.3 assists, 1.2 steals, 1.3 blocks in 31.2 minutes per game. Uh, his per 36s are not safe for work. Like the dude is just completely on another level right now. And, you know, you mentioned that he's also a defensive player of the year candidate, like to be shouldering the kind of load that he is offensively with, I think the highest usage rate in the league right now, up near 39%. And also to be doing what he's doing defensively. I know he's not really tackling the kind of premier defensive assignments on a night-to-night basis. They prefer to just have him be a bit of a free safety and disrupt everything all over the floor, especially at the rim. But this defense, like, once again, is just unbelievably difficult to puncture. They are allowing the fewest proportion of shots at the rim and the lowest percentage on shots at the rim for the second year in a row. Uh, Brooke Lopez continues to be just a magnificent rim protector. And obviously when him and Giannis are out there, I mean, it's kind of similar to AD and Dwight Howard, right? Like it's just a huge front line with one kind of traditional center who plays a drop back and stays extremely close to the rim. And then this other guy who can do that, but also can rove and switch and wreak havoc on the perimeter. They're kind of similarly built in that way defensively. Yeah, and even like Giannis being kind of a rover defensively obviously hasn't, you know, it, it's not because he is a weak one-on-one defender or there's any liabilities there. It's simply because he's he's special enough physically and athletically to do that, right? And so you can have him as a rover and and have the number one defense in the league. And I think that's an important note to, to make too. And I think, you know, with that 18-game win streak, it's sort of similar to the Lakers where, like, yes, any team gets immense credit for winning that number of games in a row in the NBA, but the the lack of marquee wins on the ledger during that run, it makes it hard to kind of get the pulse pounding. And ultimately, the Bucks and the Lakers both have only played 10 teams apiece that are above 500 right now. There are, I think, are only 13 teams in the league that actually are above 500. So, you know, that's part of the issue right there. But those teams, each of them are, are six and four in such games. 
and are 18 and 0 against teams below 500. So actually, only 12 teams in the league above 500. There you, you go. Can believe that? Yeah. yeah, six in each conference. Yes. Right. Um, I thought there were seven in the East. No, because the 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 Nets have have. Oh, you know what? And, You're right. That's my bad. I, I had it sorted by point differential right now instead of uh, percentage. You're right. Mm-hmm. It's 13 with the Nets being 13. Um, and I think so, so. Like another thing with the Bucks is, like they haven't really changed the way that they play. It's the same thing as last year, where their half court offense is fairly improvisational. Um, not a lot of set plays. A lot of Giannis just sort of initiating from up top bulldozing toward the rim and breaking down or breaking through a defense, either creating a shot for himself at the rim or creating a shot for his teammates on the perimeter. And he is once again scoring more than any other player by far in the restricted area. Uh, They live in transition. They get out and run more than any team. This is all stuff we saw from them last year, and it's working again just as we expected it to. Like, I predict them to have the best record in the NBA during the regular season. I predicted them to make the finals. Um, So... It's not like any of this is particularly surprising to me, and it's not that it isn't impressive. I just don't know that it's especially interesting to talk about. Right. The one thing you could say that has materially changed is these threes that Giannis is taking. Like, he is leading the Bucks in three-point attempts. Which, which is, is insane. Which that, is like, wild. Think about that. Um, and he's shooting 32% on them, which is decidedly not terrible. Given everything else that he does on the court and the way he can bend defenses by his rim running, his driving, his insane efficiency around the rim, Giannis Antetokounmpo being a 32% three-point shooter on a fair amount of attempts is terrifying. Yeah, it's a, it's a potentially big development. I am Big not, does not even describe it. Like, well, are you sold? I don't know that I'm sold. No, I'm not sold. But I'm saying if, if, he, if say, he just was from here yeah. on out. Even a 32, 33% three-point shooter on this many attempts, that's, mm-hmm. that's terrifying. Yeah, to me, I think, you know, the mechanics still don't look especially right. natural. Uh, it, it takes him a lifetime to get that shot off, which isn't really a big deal because teams are just going to give him that shot all day anyway. So the slow release, I guess, isn't such an issue, but I just still don't fully trust it, um, especially because his free throw shooting has concurrently gone totally haywire. Yeah. And I just, I have this nagging feeling that like they're going to end up in a fraught playoff moment where they really need somebody where, you know, Giannis is running into a wall and getting double and triple teamed, but teams are rotating to take away those catch and shoot threes or those catch and shoot threes aren't going down. And it's a tight game and they're playing in the half court, and they just need somebody to go and make something happen off of the dribble. And they are going to think, man, it would be really, really nice to have Malcolm Brogdon right now. Yeah. The guy who gets to the rim almost at will on a team that is not getting to the rim as much as they got last year and that they will desperately need when one of those moments comes because it is coming. And, you know, I was going to mention it. When you said, um, you said something along the lines of, you know, whether we can trust the fact that the formula really hasn't changed. We saw it last year. Well, the thing is, I trust the formula. The formula to me is not the issue. Having a once-in-a-generation type talent like Giannis Antetokounmpo and the way he can, you know, like I said, bend a defense and surrounding him with a plethora of shooting and having an elite defense, like, that formula can win a championship. I'm not at all concerned about that. The roster around him is the problem, not the formula, not the strategy. I still do not believe that you can win a championship 
when the disparity between your best player and your second best player is what it is, when your second and third best players are Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe. And again, I like Chris Middleton. I've always liked Chris Middleton. I both, was, the, both those guys have played very well this season. They have. I, Middleton's like at close to 50, 40, 90 shooting splits right again, now. Again, I love Chris Middleton. I, you know, I've been on the Chris Middleton's an all-star train from before he was an actual all-star. But I do not believe he can be the second best player on a championship team, even one with Giannis Antetokounmpo on it. And I just think there are too many question marks here that, you know, there's an extra one with Brogdon gone, as we just mentioned, and some of the deficiencies that that creates. And that brings me to my question for you, which is, you pick this team to get to the finals. I picked them to probably lose in the conference finals. Neither one of us picked them to win the title. Mm -hmm. I think we're pretty much in agreement that not necessarily that they have to win a title to keep Giannis, but for the most part that this season feels kind of like title or bust for them. Do you believe, as presently constructed, without making a single move, this team can win the championship? Yes, I do. But I think a lot of stuff has to happen. You know, one of the things that gives me some hope that they can is I think that Giannis has really improved as a passer. Obviously, a lot of those improvements he made before this season... But I just think, like, some of the the passes that he has made this year, like the backhand passes, the no-look passes, the velocity that he puts on those passes, it's just reached another level. Um, So I think, like, that playmaking and his ability to deal with with extra defensive pressure and double and triple teams, I have a little bit more faith in them being able to bust it this year than they were last year. I mean, a big question for me is, like, how is their depth going to hold up in the playoffs? Because their depth has been such a huge part of their regular season success. It was last year too. And going into that series against the Raptors, we kind of flagged that as a big advantage that they were going to have. And in the end, their bench actually got thoroughly outplayed by the Raptors bench. And maybe that was just a fluke. You know, you're dealing with small sample sizes in the playoffs. But like right now they have a plus 7.5 net rating with Giannis off the floor, which is wild. And and like they're getting great contributions from DiVincenzo, George Hill, Ilya Sova, Sterling Brown, Pat Connaughton. Like, is that is any of that going to matter come playoff time? Like, are those guys going to be able to come through for them? Obviously, Bledsoe is going to be a big playoff question mark until we see otherwise. So, I think those are all important considerations. But if you're asking me, like, yeah, do they have enough on the roster to win? I absolutely think that they do. And you know, when I talk about how things haven't necessarily changed that much in terms of how they play, in terms of the roster makeup, in terms of what they actually look like. I'm not necessarily saying that like it's a bad thing because I think even if they're not any better than they were last year, even if they don't play any better in the playoffs this year than they played last year, I think there's a pretty damn good chance that they make the finals, and maybe even win. Like, I, I just think they, they were really close to doing that last year. Do they run into the Clippers in the finals? You think they do. I think they run into the Clippers <laughs> in the finals. And, yeah, if if that series were to happen, I would pick the Clippers to win. But I, it wouldn't be some, like, overwhelming favorite, I don't think. I, it would be maybe, like, a 70-30. That's pretty split. overwhelming. Especially for a team that's probably going to go in with, like, 65 to 70 wins. To, only, to say that they only have a 30% chance to win a series. I'd say that's pretty overwhelming. Yeah, and you know I mean, what? I th- I'd say that's kind of high, but but I think that the clip, like, I think the Clippers are insanely good. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, I don't. That's not an indictment of the Bucks in my mind. Like, that to me is just a testament to how good I think the Clippers can be. Yeah, and and I'm saying to you, I think that 30 percent is high. I think that if the Bucks run into the Clippers and Kawhi Leonard is healthy, 
I think the Bucks. I mean, I might as well give them a zero percent chance to win. <laughs> they're they're not beating zero percent. I'd go closer to zero than I would go to thirty. They're not beating the Clippers if Kawhi Leonard's on the court. We saw what he did to Giannis in the playoffs last year. Yeah, but in the minutes that Kawhi and Giannis were both on the floor in that series, the Bucks and Raptors were dead even. So, but what was the turning point in that series? I know that was the turning point in the series, but you have to also consider everything else that happened. Hundred percent. Right? Fred Van Vliet shot an unsustainable level. Of, like I, I realize a lot. Fred went Fred Van right. Vliet went totally bonkers. Yes. Eric Bledsoe completely disappeared. Right, and I have re- like I, Nico Miritich completely fell apart. Like there, there is context, right? And there yes, is. like Giannis. It wasn't the first time Eric Bledsoe has disappeared in the playoffs. No, I know. I'm like that stuff could very well happen again. But to say that there's a zero percent chance that the Bucks are going to win, I didn't say there is a zero. I said it's closer to zero than thirty. That's crazy. I would call it more likely that Eric Bledsoe disappears in the playoffs and performs at the level he's playing right now. I mean, maybe so, but I, I just. To say that, like, because Kawhi like beat Giannis in a playoff not because series he beat last him. year, not because he beat him, but because he basically took him out of the series for his standard, for Giannis's standards, not out of the series numbers wise. But but like the Raptors team context, the way that that was, team played defense is completely different and on another level from what I think the Clippers are going to be able to agreed, do. agreed. But on a team with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, I think they have the goods to come as close as you can to negating Giannis Antetokounmpo. And if they do that, the rest of this fraudulent roster will have no shot. See, I think, like, I would be more concerned about what Philly could do defensively against Giannis than what the Clippers well, could do defensively That's why, I mean, him. I picked the Sixers to win the East because... But I, I don't think, think the Clippers... I, but I don't think the Sixers can score enough on agreed. the Agreed. I think we might get some 78-77 games <laughs> in that series because I think both teams can neutralize each other. But, but what I'll say is that I think the questions that we're asking... Of the box, it's very rare to ask these questions of a team that looks like they could legitimately threaten 70 wins, right? Teams that roll like this usually don't have the question marks that we have for this team. And I don't know if, like, that's a testament maybe to but just like, what we saw in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a testament to the fact that they shouldn't be as good as they are and Giannis is just that special. Like, I, I don't know. I just think that it's very rare for a team to be this good and to pass all the tests they've passed. In 2014-15, the Warriors won 67 games, ran roughshod over the entire league. That, like, I don't think anybody really believed particularly strongly in that team's ability to win a title until they actually did it. There was all this, oh, can a jump shooting team win a championship? Even though the Spurs had won it doing the same thing the year before. Yes, you know, and can you win a championship with with a point guard? You know, of Steph Curry's stature as your best player. Like all, there were these questions out there, and I think for any team, until you see them do it, there are going to be doubts about their ability to punch through. So the one counter I'll say to that though is that that year for the Warriors was like what last year was for the Bucks. It was Steve Kerr's first year. Changed the system. Changed the way they played. The way they moved the ball. The way they played offense. Which was very similar to what Mike Budenholzer did last year. And it's the way we thought about the Bucks last year. Ah, we don't trust this. Even though they're 60 win juggernaut and the best team in the league, we don't trust it. And then the Bucks did end up falling flat on their face at the end. Not through the whole playoffs, but at the end they did. So I think it's different now. Because it's not... Like with the Warriors that year, it was like, whoa, like we've never seen this from this Warriors team. Like, can we trust it? Or And then they ended up coming through in the playoffs. You know what I mean? So... 
to me, that comparison was more like the Bucks last year of us not trusting them the way we didn't trust the Warriors. And the difference was the Warriors ended up winning the title and the Bucks fell flat on their face. In, the, <laughs> in those not, year was... They did not fall flat on their face. This is like the expectations six, for that team changed so dramatically and so quickly. Like the year before, they'd won 44 games and lost in the first round. Right, and then they were a 60-win team with a almost plus nine point differential that went up 2-0 in a conference finals where they had home court advantage and the MVP and they didn't win another game and they blew two... 15 to 20 point leads in games five and six. I'd call that falling flat on their face. I wouldn't. I think that that for the most part, if you take that season as a whole, they exceeded expectations. Oh, I'm talking about the it's playoffs. Just, I know. I know. And and this is you know where we get into talking about the macro versus the micro, where in the macro, they had an unbelievable smashing success of a season. In the micro, you know, you dig down and see what they could have done potentially. And the fact that they couldn't win that series and make it to the finals, which I think they would have won, honestly. Against that banged-up Warriors team, I think they win the championship if they get through Toronto. That's looked at as a failure. And I guess in some ways you can say that it is because they had such a good chance to win the title. Uh, I I don't necessarily view it that way. And I think, you know, the speed with which they went from this kind of, like, feel-good story that had busted through their expectations to this title-or-bust kind of team that nobody's willing to believe in until, you know, they see them do it in the playoffs is pretty jarring. Um, and I understand it, but it's just crazy how fast that happened. But that's what happens when you look afraid of the moment. And like, again, it wasn't just that they lost. It was the way they lost. And I do think that matters, at least in our, in our perception of it. But, you know, to me, calling that a failure or saying they fell flat on their faces does a disservice to the Raptors and what no, they were able to do, listen, especially Raptors defensively in that series. were a worthy champion with... Um, one of the best team defenses I've ever seen, quite frankly, in my lifetime. But I think I think you can give credit to the Raptors while still acknowledging that a 60-win team with the MVP and home court advantage up 2 nothing, and then up 15-plus in games 5 and 6 didn't win another game. Like, I still think you can call that falling flat on its face. You can. I won't, but you can, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, I, I do... Like, I just want to see them diversifying their offense a little bit. And I think, really, like, that formula had been so successful last season until they ran into a team that was uniquely equipped to take that stuff away. And I've seen maybe, like, a little bit of that. Like, I think they're running a bit more pick and roll uh, with Giannis, you know, both as a ball handler and as a screener. One thing I think that has been successful when they've run it, and I think that they should, like, do more of, is something the Cavs used to do a lot when LeBron was there surrounded by shooters, which is that like using a shooter to screen for Giannis really just presents like an impossible choice for the defense. Like having Korver screen for Giannis, you know, you can't really switch that or Giannis has this mismatch that he can beast in the post. You can't really trap because Korver's slipping free and he's going to get a wide open three. Uh, There's just like no real good way to defend that. And I think... Like, I've seen them run that a couple times, and it just seems like it leads to success every single time. With Giannis as a screener, like, as a dive man, he is incredibly tough to stop rolling to the rim. I just think I would like to see them include more of that stuff and maybe a few more set plays in their offense rather than the amount that they just have Giannis initiate and hurl himself toward the rim and try and create that way. You mentioned the the Raptors last season having the very unique personnel to neutralize what the Bucks did. 
which team do you think has the closest thing to that personnel this year? Philly? I think it's Philly, yeah. yeah. It's, it looks very similar to me, right? And, like, the, the prospect of having a guy like Horford, who has had a lot of success defending Giannis in the past, if you can have him sort of play Giannis one-on-one without demanding too much help, and then you have Embiid waiting back there at the rim if Giannis happens to break through. You have this insane amount of just size and length where, you know, you saw the Raptors basically build that wall and transition every time down. You know, three guys spreading their arms basically the width of the court. You got that in Ben Simmons, Horford, Embiid, Josh Richardson. Like, they just have so Matisse, much size. Thibel. Thibel, yeah. Like, I mean, they are uniquely equipped in the same way the Raptors were, I think, with their size, their length, their collective intelligence. I think that was an underrated thing with Toronto, too, just, like, how smart that defense was. The basketball IQ on that team was just unbelievable. And I think when that Sixers defense is really humming and in sync, it is as tough to score on as any defense in the league. So that would be the team I would point to and say they have the goods to to neutralize Giannis, you know, to the extent that he can be neutralized, completely take the Bucks out of their offense and have them searching for answers. And, you know, we've seen when the Bucks are searching for answers, it can be tough when you sort of do the same thing over and over again throughout the regular season and maybe the first two rounds of the playoffs. And suddenly, you know, you run into a matchup that makes you rethink your entire identity. You know, what do you do from there? I, I think the Sixers are the team that has a chance to really do that. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. The postseason, as always, is about matchups, right? And and I think the beauty of this season is that there is no team that is matchup-proof. At least I don't think so. And I think, you know, I, I realize the Warriors finally did lose last year, but we, we know, you know, had they been healthy, they would have been the overwhelming favorite in that series. And had they been healthy, we would have looked at them as pretty matchup proof. This is, you know, the first year since the Warriors got together that I think we can really look at it and say there is no team that's matchup proof. Like the Lakers have flaws you can exploit. The Clippers have flaws you can exploit. The Bucks, we just spent a long time talking about the flaws you can exploit. The Sixers will run into situations where they just straight up can't score and will turn the ball over 11 times in 15 minutes. You know, like, there is not a team in the league, even the Bucks and the Lakers, who are on pace for whatever it is, 68-69 wins. No team, to me, can look at their path through the playoffs and say, oh, we're fine. Like, there's going to be a matchup in there that really exposes them. I think that's really interesting. Absolutely, and I think that's sort of why we were so excited about this season coming in. Maybe, you know, there haven't been as many title contenders emerging as we thought there would be coming into the season. You know, we singled out eight teams saying these eight teams can win the title. I don't know. I feel like that's maybe been whittled down to like five or six. Uh, All right. Look, look, pending, pending trade season. Run through them right now. Presently constructed. We don't know what happens Mm -hmm. trade wise as presently constructed. Who do you think can not like if like 13 different things bounce right for them? Like, 
just can win the championship right now as constructed? I, I think I'm inclined to say four. Nope. As much as, you know, we've talked a lot, and I wrote a whole piece about it, about how the East is no longer just like the two-team race that we expected it to be with the way that, that Toronto, Boston, and Miami, and even Indiana have played. Those teams are all going to be super tough outs. I could see any one of them, you know, upsetting one of Milwaukee or Philly to make the conference finals. Maybe outside chance one of those teams make the finals. But I don't think any of those teams can beat one of the Lakers or the Clippers in the finals. Whereas I think the Bucks and Sixers actually can. So I'm still saying that really the Bucks and Sixers are the only two legit championship contenders in the East. And in the West, it's gotten really tough for me to see any team other than one of those LA teams coming out. So I'm feeling like there are four right now. What do you? What? What about you? <laughs> I think I'm going two, man. I think two. I, and I think we. I think you even made fun of me for this, like earlier in the season. Yeah, because you remember? said it like a week into the season. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm I'm not backing down on it now. I still. I think if we're talking about like, straight up win the championship, I, I think one of the two LA teams would have to be it. I think it would take injuries. Um, to both teams for one of the LA teams to not win the title. If Chris Paul was still on the Rockets, would you put them in that conversation? Yeah. Especially the way Chris Paul's playing this year, man. Like, you know, he's not... He's still really good. Yeah, he's not prime Chris Paul, but he's still an elite player in the NBA. He absolutely eviscerated the Bulls. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah, it was great. Um, why, don't we, why don't we close, actually, just by, by talking about Harden for a few minutes? Because, you know, we talked about LeBron. We talked about Giannis. I think right now we have like a four-player MVP race, and Doncic is the other guy who we've talked about enough, uh, and he's injured right now, unfortunately. He's probably going to be out for a couple of weeks. So we'll return to Doncic at a later date, but what Harden's doing is absolutely insane, and I don't know if we could ever really give it its just due because it has sort of just become normalized in a way, but like this dude is averaging 39 points a game. And it doesn't look unsustainable, right? Like, like what he does seems to be relatively comfortable. I'm not going to say it's easy for him, but like it doesn't seem like he's doing anything outside of the scope of his capabilities. And I just don't think that I ever thought that we would actually see this in my lifetime in the NBA. Like the days of, you know, Wilt averaging 44 and 50 points a game just seemed like it was part of a bygone era. And, and I don't think that I ever believed that we would see anything like what Harden is doing as a scorer. And obviously we've seen, you know, the gimmick defenses that teams are playing to try and stop him and, you know, not only get the ball out of his hands, but just limit his free throw attempts. So like running those indiscriminate double teams at him just to get him to give up the ball. Um, and when teams don't do that, he drops 50 points, like pretty routinely. He had back-to-back games where he dropped 50 points and hit 10 threes. Yeah. He's at 50 points in like a game or two where teams have done that. (laughs) Right. It's it's pretty mind-blowing. And I think, you know, he absolutely belongs right up there with with Giannis, with LeBron, with Doncic in the MVP conversation. And I I just think we should take a minute and appreciate how ridiculous he's been. 100%. You know me. I've always been, you know, of the mind that people are too hard on... The aesthetics and whatever. And I get it. We watch basketball to be entertained. I mm-hmm. understand that we want it to be as aesthetically pleasing as possible. 
But I do not care. When a guy is averaging 39 points per game and carrying an offense the way James Harden has, like no player I've ever seen before, okay? And yes, I just said that. I'm only 30, so we're, you know, I'm not talking about Wilt and Larry and Magic, but I'm including MJ in that. I'm not saying Harden's better than MJ, but I've never seen MJ or any other player strictly carry an offense single-handedly, completely single-handedly the way James Harden has in the last two seasons especially. What he does is unbelievable, and all you have to do is watch the way teams defend him to get it. Like, anyone who doesn't get it, anyone who thinks it's gimmicky, anyone who thinks this, trying to draw too many fouls, like, whatever your complaints are with watching James Harden, watch the way teams have defended him, this season especially, and you will understand how he has warped the game, how he scares opposing defenses shitless, regardless of who's on the court with him. Like, this guy is an offense unto himself. And not just an offense unto himself, an elite offense unto himself. The Rockets are third in offensive rating right now. Their numbers, like we talked about earlier this year, with Harden on and Westbrook off, are still unbelievable. They're even better. This guy, if you have James Harden, Wolfond and I, and two other scrubs you pick up off the street on an NBA court, we're probably going to have, like, the seventh best offensive rating in the league. Yeah, I mean, he's revived Ben McLemore's career, basically, yeah. right? Like ben the, McLemore. These role players on, on the Rockets are just ben dining out on open catch and shoot it's, um, it, And that's, you know, that's the risk you run when you play the defensive teams that played against Harden and you, and you make a decision that you're going to take him out of the game, but you end up surrendering a lot of wide-open catch-and-shoot threes. And, you know, the Rockets' role players have taken advantage of that, whether it's P.J. Tucker or Daniel House or McLemore. Ben, um, I used to flex when my team was down 28 after a dunk, Macklemore, is now, Ben, I get to flex when my team's up, Macklemore, because James Harden. Because I just hit eight threes right, in a game. Because um, James Harden's spoon-feeding them the cleanest looks you can imagine. Another thing I want to point out with Harden that I just don't think gets nearly enough attention, not from you because you pointed out a lot, Harden's defense, like, yes... He falls asleep off of the ball. He gets back cut from time to time. When he's defending in space, he can be lazy and reach and get blown by. On the whole, he is not an especially great defender. You know what opponents are shooting against Harden in the post this year? Something terrible. Seven for 37 with eight turnovers. He's an elite post defender. More turnovers than made field goals against him in the post. And just four free throw attempts. All told, 17 points on 47 possessions that have been finished out of the post with him defending. He has been unbelievable defending the post. He uses his hands so well down there. He is so strong. He doesn't get enough and credit for how strong he is. It's crazy. And like that has a lot to do with how good and efficient he is offensively exactly. too. Right? His, his ability to just plow through multiple defenders and get to the rim and draw contact and finish through contact. But... His ability to defend in the post is such a big part of what makes that switch everything system work. And so many teams, I think they've started to recognize that it isn't really a matchup advantage the way that they think. But so many teams, I think, in the past have seen that. They get Harden switched onto them with a bigger guy, and they try to take him into the post, thinking that it's going to be an easy bucket, and it just never is. And I, I just think he deserves a lot of credit for, for the way that he has defended. And I think part of that is... You know, there have been a lot of games where teams are trapping him at midcourt. He's giving up the ball. He chills near midcourt for the rest of the possession, and that leaves him a lot more energy to play defense. He straight up said that. Uh, Mike D'Antoni mentioned this after the Rockets beat the Raptors in Toronto when they defended him the way they did. They had OG Ananomi basically 
face guarding him at center court while the rest of the play developed 40 feet from them. And Mike D'Antoni said at one point that he, I don't know if he asked James Harden if he wanted to come out or asked him how he was feeling like physically. And Harden said, I'm not getting tired because I'm not really having to move. They're just like chilling on me and I'm chilling at center court. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And and to that point too, like I think people should appreciate watching him. You know, like everyone has their different viewpoints of the kind of basketball they like, but I don't think that means you shouldn't be able to appreciate it. Right? Like everyone likes the type of ball movement the Spurs had in the 2014 finals. That was beautiful to watch. But you can you can agree that that's, you know, the most beautiful, purest form of basketball and still be like, well, it's actually really interesting to watch the way teams are defending mm-hmm. hard. Like, let's see if he can pull this off tonight. And like, you know what I mean? I, I just don't understand as much as there's people that say, well, if you're a fan of basketball, like you can't enjoy this. You know, my counter to that is if you're a fan of basketball, you should be able to enjoy basketball in all its forms and NBA basketball in all its forms. And you should be able to enjoy superstar talent in all its forms, right? They're not all made the same. Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to tell anybody how to watch basketball or what they should or shouldn't appreciate. Like you mentioned, you know, aesthetics are a huge part of the game. It's an entertainment product. And I, I don't fault anybody who says they're not entertained by watching James Harden play. I totally get it. And I'm not going to shame anybody for not appreciating his greatness. I just want to say, you know, outside of aesthetics and in terms of just sheer production and ability, what he's doing is basically unprecedented. And, you know, you don't have to appreciate that, but I think you have to acknowledge it and, and just respect his talent because uh, he, he has been ridiculously good. And I think, you know, if I was picking an MVP right now, I know it's kind of silly when we just like insist on, on like picking MVPs at various points of the season because uh, it's really not going to matter until the season's over. I would probably pick Giannis, but I think Harden would be my number two right now and a pretty close number two at that. Yeah, uh, I completely agree with that. And it's even just hearing you say that, it makes me wonder by the end of Harden's illustrious career, how many close number twos he's going to have in the MVP race, yeah. you know? Like yeah. whether it was to Russell Westbrook, uh, I think to Steph Curry one year, to Giannis last year, probably to Giannis this year, probably to like Doncic in two years. Harden's going to be go down as like the ultimate runner-up in the MVP race. He's averaging thirty-nine points I'm, a game. I, like yeah, it's, it's it's just I, I I'm running out of ways to contextualize and wrap my head around the numbers that he's putting up. I think one of the coolest things in any sport, if you're a fan, to watch is a great player who is in opponents' heads. And those opponents know exactly what's coming and how they want to defend it. and They're powerless to stop it. And they're still powerless to stop it. And he's still too good and so much better than them that even though everyone in the arena knows exactly what's coming, he still knows he can do that. You know? Like most players, even at the professional level, if they're game plan for and everyone knows what's coming, they're not getting that. Right. Because teams won't let them. And with a guy like James Harden, it just doesn't matter because he's better than you and he's going to get it. He's scoring 1.17 points per isolation possession. Like, I don't... An offense built out of nothing but James Harden isolations would be the most efficient offense of all time. When it comes to iso ball, like, basically a flat point per possession is pretty impressive, especially on a high volume. Like, if you can get one point per possession out of iso ball, that's really damn impressive. That's why iso ball has gone the way of the dinosaurs, right, in in the modern NBA because it's not an efficient way to play and to score. And yet, when James Harden does it, 
it would be the most efficient play ever. Literally. And yet, for all of this, we don't consider the Rockets a true championship contender. And I guess one, one reason for that, like I'm looking at the numbers now, with Harden on court and Westbrook on court, 7.2 net rating. That's, that's quite elite. good. With Harden on court and Westbrook off court, 13.6 net Better rating. than the Bucks all-time net rating. With Westbrook on and Uh-oh. Harden off, Uh-oh. minus 10.2. And, and look, like Harden's not going to be off of the court for many minutes in the playoffs, so I don't know that they'll necessarily have to worry about that. I just I continue to think that what they sacrificed when they sent out Chris Paul and the tenuous fit between Harden and Westbrook is just going to come back to bite them when yep. it matters most. And we've already seen it. All those double teams that opponents are sending at Harden. I mean, that, like, that's a direct byproduct of having Westbrook there and basically just having a natural place for somebody to help off and go and double Harden because Westbrook often is going to be that release valve and teams know that he's either not going to shoot the three or he's going to shoot it. And that shot is right now a 23% proposition. I think Westbrook's been better lately at kind of attacking a scrambled defense and running those four on threes when he does receive that pass from Harden out of the trap. But I think he's still, he's still struggling to, to find out like the most efficient way for him to operate in that system. And he's still taking a lot of bad shots, like, you know, toward the tail end of that game, when they made that incredible comeback against the Spurs, it was, I think they were up by two. They ended up winning the game anyway. Spurs were up 25 in that game, right? They were. Yeah. It was a crunch time possession, and they give the ball to Westbrook, and he tries to post up DeJounte Murray and takes like a turnaround fadeaway that hits backboard and no rim. It's like the, the decision-making is still pretty questionable, and I, I think the downgrade in terms of decision-making, in terms of shooting ability, in terms of defense from, from Chris Paul t- to Westbrook is, is what is ultimately going to sink them. Like If Paul was there, I, I would absolutely put them in that discussion with the Lakers and Clippers as a team that is fully capable of winning a championship. And I, just, I, don't, I don't know if I can do that. No, 100%. I agree with you. If you take, you know, not Chris Paul two years ago, Chris Paul today, and put him on this team instead of Russell Westbrook, I think this team can absolutely win a championship. Yeah, I might even pick them to win the championship, given the way James Harden's playing. <sighs> but instead, it's at a point where we can say everything we just said about James Harden and still say, I don't actually think they have a chance to win the championship. And... You know, they'll probably lose in the second round again. If I had to bet on it, they'd probably lose in the second round again. And I think a lot of people, and maybe even Rockets fans, and maybe even James Harden in his head will be like, well, you know, we didn't go further than that with Chris Paul last year, so what's it matter? You know, the difference is now I got my friend with me instead of a guy I hate. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say hate. I don't know if he hates him, but they didn't seem to get along. But I think we we know, right, that just because they don't necessarily get eliminated a round earlier or a game earlier, like they don't have the chance they had with Chris Paul. And this is another thing where it's like, you, you, you talk about Chris Paul's legacy and what really goes into it at the end of the day. And that's part of it. Like the fact that a potential championship team, you know, had to get broken up because he couldn't peacefully coexist with his teammates. Oh, like, that, that's, that's part of his legacy. No, I right? do. And like, I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, he has to, Chris Paul does have to own that. You know, on multiple stops, not just Houston. But I will also say that, you know, James Harden has to own some of that too. Because while the guys he hasn't gotten along with in the end, you know, are guys that have had issues other 
elsewhere, like Dwight Howard and Chris Paul, James Harden is now that guy too, right? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, it's impossible to know like where to lay the blame if blame is what you want to call it, but I just think it's it, it's disappointing for the Rockets that they had to break those two guys up. And maybe I'll maybe I'll be wrong. I mean, maybe they can they can still get this done. But from what I've seen of Westbrook this season, I I just don't see it. And it's only going to get worse. Yeah. Let's wrap up the sort of basketball portion of our discussion there uh, and just leave on this note. Uh, David Stern, former NBA commissioner of 30 years, is in critical condition right now after he had a brain hemorrhage. And we haven't really had any updates about his condition in a couple days, uh, except for the fact that he remains in serious condition and is surrounded by his loved ones. Uh, I just want to say, I mean, I, I and I think a lot of other people had some quibbles with David Stern over the years and, and how he ran the league, but I don't know how many people did more to grow the game of basketball and the NBA brand than he did. He is just like an absolute titan of the game. And a huge historical figure in this league and I think you know what can we say other than our our thoughts are with him and his family and we really hope that he pulls through yeah absolutely I mean he changed the game in so many ways made the NBA more of a global enterprise than than it ever was and you know you mentioned like what he did as a commissioner for the NBA being more than any other commissioner has done. You can make the argument no commissioner in pro sports in North America has furthered his league's interests the way David Stern did in his three decades on the job. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, despite the fact there were people who didn't appreciate that he wasn't particularly favorable to the union at times and he had draconian policies like the dress code and things like that, at at the end of the day, like, he was true to himself and, and his values to the end and an absolutely crucial figure in the NBA's growth. And and regardless of that, I mean, he is a human being who is in critical condition right now, and so we're thinking about him and, and his family. And with that, for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Talk to you all next week.